Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class, the pastor's Bible class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. A special welcome to those who are listening on KFUO radio. This is the third Sunday. As we heard last week, the emphasis of today is on joy. Next Sunday is the fourth Sunday in the season of Advent. The time is drawing much closer. The emphasis of the lessons that we're going to be looking at for the fourth Sunday in Advent are about the Annunciation, the preparation of the world for God's Son becoming human flesh. We begin our study with a word of prayer. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come among us. Prepare us to receive our Savior. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Let us hear the ancient message, the prophecy of what is to come, what has come, and what is coming again, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so we pray your Spirit's blessings upon our Bible study today, that we might be strengthened in our faith and equipped for the one who is to come, equipped to celebrate Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The Old Testament reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent is once again from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And throughout this Advent season, you may have noticed that all of the readings come from Isaiah. They'll continue through the Christmas season with all of them except one, the second Sunday of Christmas, all talking about words from the prophet Isaiah. And today's is the familiar words of Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 17. Once again we want to look at this passage in its historical context. Remember that Isaiah had this long ministry of more than 50 years. He saw at least four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, good kings, and then there was Ahaz, who is the, the focus of our attention today. Ahaz was not a good king. As a matter of fact, Ahaz, who reigned in the years of 735 to 715, roughly, was, was a, a, a king who was enamored with the Assyrians. And as we'll see, he is panic-stricken by political events going on in the world. And so he introduces the, the gods of the Assyrians, the, the Baal, into the worship of God's people, Judah. Not only that, he, he also offered sacrifices to Baal, including the sacrifices of his own children, which was an abomination to the Lord his God. And then he shut down worship in the temple, and he set up these little altars on every street corner, and so what had been very sacred, a place where people could go to be in the presence of God, now the world became very secular. God was everywhere. And it was no big deal to go to the temple to be in the presence of God. They brought God down to street level instead of the high and mighty God. And so Ahaz was known as one of the wicked, one of the most wicked of all the kings. He ruled during a time of upheaval and spiritual change and all kinds of political intrigue, a time very much like our own. As we've said in the past, there's a great deal of law 
And we'll hear some of the law today, but we'll also hear the gospel according to Isaiah. Isaiah is the one who prepared the way for the Savior 700 years before he came. So again, the historical context, Ahaz was this ungodly king enamored with the Assyrians because, and he probably had good reason for liking the Assyrians, the northern kingdom, Israel, had already aligned with Syria. And they were leading an attack against Jerusalem. This was a mighty force he was contending with. Scripture tells us that in one day this alliance of, of Israel and Syria had killed 120,000 Jews and taken 200,000 captive. And they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Although they never were able to breach it, there was always this constant threat that they were going to cut off the water supply, they were going to cut off the food, they were going to force Jerusalem into submission. And so it's, the text says that Ahaz was shaken to the very heart. He was in panic mode about what he should do. And his first instinct was to sign a, an alliance, a, a treaty, with the the, Assyr with the, the Assyrians for, for the defense of the nation. He figured if, if the northern kingdom and Syria were teamed up, he could team up with the Assyrians and he would have a defense alliance. And so that was his natural instinct. Well, the Lord sent Isaiah to Ahaz, and in the opening verses of this chapter said to him, Be careful. Be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint. It, their, their plan against Jerusalem, will not stand. It shall not come to pass. In fact, within 65 years, God is going to deal with those two nations. And the truth of the matter was that within 65 years, Israel, the northern ten tribes, had fallen and were no longer a people of God. They disappeared. No one knows what happened to the ten tribes of Israel. And Syria? Syria would also fall and never be the world power that it once had been. And so the word came from Isaiah, and the words just before our text, Ahaz said, remain firm in the faith. Just trust God's promises. Don't get involved in this treaty with Assyria. And as they say, there were crickets. Ahaz didn't respond. He sat there contemplating what he should do. Instead of listening to the prophet, instead of doing what the Lord had commanded him to do, he was still contemplating this treaty with Assyria. And so our text begins, the word of the Lord came to him again. Again, it begins. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ask a sign, Ahaz. 
Ask a sign that God might prove to you what he's going to do. Ask a sign to confirm your faith. Ask a sign so that you don't need to enter into this treaty, but you be turned to trust in the Lord your God. Anything you want, Ahaz. It can be as high as heaven, as deep as Sheol, the place of the dead. Anything you want that will confirm your faith. What would you ask for? If God laid that before you, you want confirmation? You want absolute certainty regarding your faith? You want proof that God truly loves you? Ask whatever it is that you need. You need healing? You want some sort of blessing? You want wealth? You want power? You want to see the defeat of your enemies? Just ask whatever it is you want. Here is carte blanche. And so this became a decisive moment. He was invited to put the Lord to the test so that his faith might be confirmed. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Was this false piety? Was this hypocrisy? Was, was it a denial of, of the Lord? Notice that, that Isaiah had kind of stuck it to him. In the words, ask of the Lord your God. Ahaz had been flirting with all of these other gods, especially the Baal. And Isaiah said to him, now ask of the Lord your God. Remember who your God is. It's not Baal, it's the Lord. And so Ahaz responded, I'm not going to put the Lord. He didn't say the Lord my God, he just said the Lord. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And he looked so pious, but I think he'd already made up his mind. The decision had been made. He wasn't interested in any sign from God. He wasn't interested in confirming his faith. All he was interested in was protecting his kingdom, protecting his power, protecting his throne. And God saw through it all. God said, you won't ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. Whether you want one or not, I'm going to give it to you. And that's where our text in verse 13 picks in. He said, hear, O house of David, is it too little for you to worry men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land those two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. O house of David, Ahaz was part of that Davidic line. 
You remember back in 2 Samuel 7, King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord. And at first, Nathan the prophet said, go and do what's in your heart. Build that temple. God will be pleased. But then the Lord appeared to Nathan and said, no, go back and tell him, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to raise up your son after you. I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. God made a promise to David of a house, a lineage. One of his sons would sit on a throne forever. And the people of Israel and Judah put a great deal of stock in this promise, this word of God to King David. Some of them thought they could never be defeated because God had promised there would always be this king, a descendant of David who would rule forever. And so they could spit in God's face. They could live as they pleased. It didn't matter because God made a promise. That was clearly a, a misunderstanding of God's promise to King David. Would God establish a kingdom for David? A descendant of David who would sit on a throne and rule forever? Absolutely. But not in the way that they were thinking. Is it too little, Ahaz, for you to weary men, to weary my God? And once again, you see the contrast. Isaiah started saying, the Lord, your God. Ahaz talks about the Lord, but Isaiah said, my Lord. Is it too little a thing that you weary men that you also weary my God with your nonsense. You've made up your mind, you know what you're going to do, and so does the good Lord. Lord's going to give you a sign because he wants to strengthen your faith. He wants you to believe. He's going to give you an amazing sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Once again, that powerful word, behold, pay attention because God is going to do something amazing, something truly wonderful. Pay attention to this vision. A virgin will conceive. The Hebrew word is alma. <clears throat> there are all kinds of scholars today who will tell you that Alma simply means a young woman of marriageable age. Not necessarily a virgin as we know the term today, but a young woman of marriageable age. A young woman of marriageable age will bear a son and will give him this wonderful name, Emmanuel. What was God talking about? There are those scholars, and Martin Luther actually says there are two miracles that take place. Some believe that Isaiah was pointing to a young woman and saying, you see that young woman over there? She's going to get married, and she's going to bear a son and give him this, this nice name, God is with us, and that's going to be a sign for you. And before this 
child is weaned, before he eats curds and honey, which was the first solid food that babies would eat in that day, before he was able to talk and refuse the good and uh, ref do the good and refuse the evil, before this child comes to that age, those two kingdoms are going to fall. And that's, as Luther said, part of the miracle. But is that all that God was really promising? Or did God have something so much more in mind that he wanted to give to Ahaz and to the people of those days? We believe that God promised that no, a true virgin would conceive and bear this special son in a uniquely conceived kind of way without a human father. And he would be the savior of the world. He would be named Emmanuel because he would truly be God with us. God made this wonderful promise 730 years before Jesus was even born. He gave Ahaz, this unbeliever, an eternal sign, the promise of salvation for his people. The Son of God would become a human being. The miracle of incarnation that we're getting ready to celebrate. God in human flesh, born in this unique way, whose name would be called Emmanuel. How could Ahaz not have believed? How could Ahaz and the people of his day have been so hard-hearted? Ahaz had this promise, but his mind was already made up. He went ahead and formed that treaty with Assyria. And just as Isaiah said, bad days were on the horizon. Assyria would turn against Judah, and ultimately they would be defeated. We need to look at the New Testament passages uh, to really understand how scripture interprets scripture in this particular passage. We're going to go to the gospel reading. We're going to need to shut down a little bit early today because of the children's program that's going to be coming in. I want to make sure we get the opportunity to study the gospel in its entirety. And so we turn to the gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Gospel of Matthew is, is unique. You know, you read the other Gospels and you're kind of drawn in immediately to the, the, the wonders of who Jesus is. If I was going to tell an unbeliever to start reading a Gospel, I would never tell them to start reading the Gospel of Matthew. Because in our ears, it sounds so boring. It's a genealogy, a genealogy of Jesus on the human side of things, going back to King David and the promise that was made, going back to Abraham, the father of all the faithful. To us it sounds very, very, very boring, but to Jewish people in those days, and remember that Matthew was writing to Jewish people, particularly Jewish Christians, saying, let's look at the 
earthly genealogy of who this Jesus really is. And so he traced the time from Abraham to David, 14 generations. He traced, he looked at the, the, the genealogy of Jesus from David to the time of the exile. And if you look in that genealogy, you'll see the kings of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, all of the kings that are listed in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And then after the exile, after Israel had been restored, there are 14 more generations. So there are 14 generations between Abraham and David. 14 generations from David until the exile, and 14 generations from, from the exile until we come to a man named Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was married to a, a was, uh, yes, we'll see, married to a Mary, um, and it's through her that this child would be born. It's a unique genealogy that, that Matthew lays out before us. Because in most normal Jewish genealogies, it goes father, 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 father. But this one has, it has some Gentiles in it. And it has some women in it. And it has some terrible sinners in it. And Matthew reminds us of all of them. There was Rahab, who was a prostitute. How could she be in the lineage of this man, Jesus? And then there was Ruth, a Moabite, a Gentile. How could she be included in this genealogy? And then it mentions the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba. And how she's included and what David had done in sinning against her, that's included in the genealogy as well. Now to Jewish Christians who would read this genealogy, their ears would light up, tune in clearly, because they wanted to know who this Jesus was. Jewish people could always pick out their genealogy and prove that they were part of God's people. And so what Matthew is saying is, here is this special child, a descendant of King David, a descendant of Abraham, a true Jew. And we, we've known his father, his earthly father, his legal father. We've also known his mother a mother who is also a descendant of King David, his mother through whom this child would be born. And so in chapter 1, Matthew lays out the groundwork for telling us, yes, he's Jew, yes, he fulfills all of God's promises, but then he goes on to say, let's look at the divine genealogy. Who is this Jesus? And so it begins in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah chapter 7, the words we just heard. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until they had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Behold a woman. Behold Mary. Behold they were betrothed. Now in those days, betrothal was a lot more than what, what we call engagement. In fact, they were legally already married. A dowry price had been paid. Mary and Joseph had made a public vow to one another that we would call the marriage vow today. They were legally considered by everybody in the community, husband and wife. But they hadn't yet come together because in those days the celebration always came later. After there was this public vow uh, exchange, there was a time period of waiting in between as the husband prepared the house, the wife prepared herself, and then there was this week-long, sometimes, celebration of the marriage. And it was at that point that the woman then moved in with the man, and they began their life together. Mary and Joseph apparently had already done everything except that last step. They were legally and in the eyes of God married, but they had not yet come together to live together as husband and wife. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. You got to wonder who, who found out? How did they find out that she was with child? Was this something that Mary shared privately with Joseph? Or was this public knowledge that everybody in town knew that she was pregnant? And what would that mean for her? Joseph's reaction was, well, it could have been anger. He could have felt betrayal. He could have felt embarrassment because Joseph knew more than anyone else that he wasn't the father of this child. How was it that Mary became pregnant and who was the father going to be? But Joseph is identified here as a righteous man. 
And he was unwilling to put her to shame. And so he decided that he would divorce her publicly, quietly, and put her away. He wasn't going to expose her to public disgrace. He wasn't going to expose her to the possibility of stoning. Understand, Mary and Joseph could have been stoned to death by the rabbis if it was found out that she was pregnant at this point before they were publicly married. Adultery in those days was a crime guilty of stoning. Joseph couldn't understand. He kept mulling this over in his mind. How? Why? Who was the father of this child? And you see, that's really the, the question that all of Matthew's readers are asking. You just gave us this genealogy, and then you tell us that Joseph wasn't the daddy. Who is the daddy? Can we trust this word of God? Isn't that the question that modern Christians are asking as well? Who's the daddy? Did he have a human father, or didn't he? And Matthew sets out then to explain to us, there is no father. The Lord intervened in that moment, and he sent an angel to reveal the truth. Once again, in verse 20, it says, Behold, pay attention, readers. Pay attention, Joseph. This is important. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. An angel appeared. It, it isn't that Joseph just dreamed about an angel. That's not what the text says. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This wasn't a common occurrence. You know, we, we sometimes read the Christmas story and we get this idea, there were angels everywhere all the time. This was just a common, ordinary occurrence. There was an angel that appeared to Zechariah and told him about his son and how he should name that child John. There was an angel that appeared to Mary. There's an angel that appears to Joseph. There's an angel that appears to the, the wise men, I'm sorry, to the shepherds out in the fields. And we get this idea at Christmas time there's always angels all around. Our trees are decorated with angels. Folks, there weren't angels in those days any more often than there are today. Or maybe as often as there are today. And we just don't recognize them as angels. God sent a very special messenger to Joseph. Appeared to him in a dream with a very special message from God. He knew this was God speaking to him. The, the, the angel said, Joseph, son of David. And once again, the emphasis is on the promise that God made to David. And the promise that God made to Ahaz. It's all about King David. The promise being fulfilled. 
The angel said, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't fear? How often do those words come from God in the Christmas story? Fear not. Fear not Mary. Fear not Joseph. Fear not shepherds. Fear not because God has good news. What could Joseph possibly been afraid of? Could he been afraid of the consequences? Mary was found to be pregnant and he wasn't the father. They could both be stoned to death. Was he afraid of the responsibility that God was about to lay on him? Was he afraid because he realized in that moment he was in the presence of an angel of God, that the glory of God was all around him too? Don't fear to take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is the Father here. It simply says that in a miraculous kind of way, there was no earthly father. It wasn't about Joseph. It wasn't about this long genealogy tracing all the way back through all of the kings back to Abraham. That which was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so this child is the one who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. He is a true man, but he is also true God. We need to pause at this point and say, why is Matthew making this case? Why is it so important for us to understand something we really cannot understand, but that Jesus is true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and true God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Our catechism addresses that issue. Two questions. Why is it necessary for Jesus to be true man? Number one, to act in our place under the law and to fulfill it for it. Jesus had to be a man in order to place himself under the law of God. He had to obey the commandments. He had to obey the word of God perfectly. If he was going to be our representative, Jesus had to do what we couldn't do, in a sense. As a true human being, he had to keep the law of God perfectly in our place as our representative. Why is it necessary for Jesus to be true man? Point two, to be able to suffer and die for our sins. He died. He was a true human being. But he had to be there to take our place, to be our representative. He had to be a real human being. Our God wouldn't be punishing human beings for their sins. Where would the justice be? And so Jesus had, <clears throat> had to be true man. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be true God? So that he might fulfill the law of God for us. You know, if Jesus had been born with a human father and a human mother, would he not 
have had original sin, just as all of us do? And if he had original sin, would he not have had to die for his sin rather than for the sins of the world? Jesus had to be true God in order to be without sin, in order to fulfill the law of God perfectly for us. He had to be true God that his suffering and death might be sufficient ransom for all people. Justice says one person sins, one person dies. But in the justice of God, one person died for the sins of all people. One person had to die as a sufficient penalty or punishment for every sin. Jesus had to be more than just a human being. He had to be true God. He had to be true God in order that he might be able to overcome death and the devil for us. No human being can raise himself from the dead, but Jesus did. He had to be more than just a human being. He had to be true God. This is the mystery of incarnation that we're getting ready to celebrate at Christmas. How can it be? That the Son of God became a true human being. Why would the Son of God become a true human being? Was he the Son of God who came down to earth and just play acted for a little while as a human being? Or who appeared as a human being and then after he died he rose and he went back to heaven to his rightful place? Scripture teaches us that Jesus is true God, 100% true God. And at the same time, he is also 100% true human being, just as you and I are, except without sin. How can that be? Why should that be? Why would God do that for you? Why would the Son of God empty himself of all the power and all the glory and come down to earth for a little while? Why would he set aside that power and glory? Why, why wouldn't he use all that power and glory? Well, there were times when his glory shone forth. Transfiguration it was there. There were times when his power shone forth, when, as we heard last week, as we heard in today's lessons, Jesus healed the sick and the blind and the lame and the deaf, and he raised the dead. Jesus was God from all eternity, as the book of John says. He was always God. He will always be God. But for those 33 years, he lived on this earth as a human being. And now what is he in heaven? Is he only God in heaven? No, because remember, the tomb was empty. The body was raised. He is still true man. 
And do you realize what a powerful message that is? That now there is a man sitting at the right hand of God, one who has been tempted as we're tempted, one who has suffered all that we suffer, one who has struggled as we've struggled, who understands us better than we understand ourselves, who understands the darkness of this world that we live in. Jesus the Son of God and Son of Man sits at the Father's right hand, ruling over all things for our sake. This is the mystery of incarnation. Imagine. Just imagine. Why would God do this for us? And the word keeps coming back, as we'll hear in, in uh, the epistle lesson for next week, as we hear throughout the gospel, it was all because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now try to imagine that for a moment, that God could love you, a sinner like you, so much that his son would take on flesh like you and suffer for you and conquer death in the grave for you so that you might be his eternally. The angel's message goes on. Verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Hebrew, the name would have been Joshua. The Lord saves. Jehovah saves. This was the reason why the Son of God took on human flesh, that he might save the world. There were obviously others who had this name. And they all pointed to God's grace. Joshua, Old Testament heroes, strong leaders of God's people. But this one, this Jesus, would, sa would actually save his people from their sins. And now, Scripture interprets Scripture. The angel interprets Isaiah chapter 7 for us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph, remember, was a righteous man. Imagine that. In the eyes of God, Joseph was a righteous man. He believed God's word. In contrast to Ahaz, who first heard this word from Isaiah, who didn't listen, refused to do God's will. We have Joseph, the righteous man, who hears this word of God and obeys it and takes Mary home to be his wife. He gave him the name Jesus when the appropriate time came. You know, Matthew doesn't go into the Christmas story the same way that St. Luke did. He doesn't tell us all about uh, the manger scene. He doesn't talk about the shepherds in the field. 
This is the Christmas story according to St. Matthew. The child was born. It's just that simple. Joseph obeyed, and he took Mary to be his wife, but he didn't know her. They had no sexual relationships until she had given birth to a son. Question, what does that mean? Especially that word, until. There are Christians, there are even Lutheran Christians who believe that Mary was an eternal virgin. That Mary and Joseph never had sexual relations. I don't believe that's what Matthew is trying to say, us, say to us. We know, for example, that Jesus had other brothers, James, for example, that we heard about last week. Um, but here it says there were no sexual relations until she had given birth to a son. Matthew uses this one last sentence. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. There was no father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a Virgin Mary. Matthew makes it absolutely clear that the promise that was given to Isaiah is the promise that is fulfilled in Jesus, the son of Mary. Any questions about those two verses? We need to quit a little bit early, so we're going to briefly breeze through Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the epistle, because it also speaks of what's happening here. Notice that Romans 1, 1 through 7 follows the, the usual order of an Old Testament, a New Testament letter. It's from Paul to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. But then there is an expanded section there in which Paul talks about, in those verses from 1 through 6, about some key points that he wants to make in the letter that's going to follow. And Paul makes, makes use of some words that are going to be repeated. If you notice, he talks about the gospel, the good news. He talks about grace, that undeserved love. He talks about faith. He talks about the nations, the Gentiles, because he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He talks about the love of God and love for one another. But when he gets right down to it, this passage is all about the Son. Here's the real emphasis of this entire epistle. And he lays out a summary of it in the opening words. And so it, it begins, From Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. 
Paul identifies himself as a slave, a slave of Jesus. He's, earned, he's owned and operated, controlled. He's in the service of his master, and his master is the Lord Jesus Christ. He follows in a long train of Old Testament uh, prophets who called themselves servants, slaves of God. And so he's identifying with those Old Testament spokesmen. He makes sure that they recognize that he has been called to be an apostle. This wasn't his will. We know the story of his call. It's repeated three times for us in the, the book of Acts. But Paul wants to make it absolutely clear to the Romans, this wasn't something that he did on his own. This isn't a gospel that he made up, but he follows this long tradition of Old Testament heroes. He's been called by Jesus with the very same message to proclaim to the world. And it's all about the Son, verse 3. And what does he say about the Son? He's descended from David according to the flesh. And that's what Isaiah, that's what Matthew is trying to make. He's a true man. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's not saying that Jesus was a human being who got some power someday and was declared to be the Son of God. And Jesus had power from the very beginning, before eternity. He always was the Son of God. But where do we recognize that most clearly? His resurrection. His resurrection. Concordia Seminary has been working with some of the, the professors at um, Washington University for a number of years. There's been an ongoing conversation. And the, the professors, they have a number of professors, even in the sciences, who believe in Jesus. And when you talk to these men about what is it that, that has convinced you, you know, you're a scientist, you study microbiology, you know history, you know geology, you know archaeology, you know all these things, and everything in the world today, everything that we think is being taught in the universities, seems to contradict what the Bible says. How is it that you're able to believe in Jesus as your Savior? And the one thing they all say the one starting point they all point to, the resurrection. Jesus overcame death and the grave. That has convinced them that he is the Son of God, their Savior. That's what St. Paul is saying here. It's all about the Son, who is a true man, born of this line of King David, but it's clear that he is also the Son of God. He always was the Son of God. He always will be the Son of God. And it's the resurrection that convinces us it's all true. And so then he goes on in verse 5. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of all the nations. It's all about his grace and it is grace that has called me Paul says to be an apostle 
And it's grace by which God has called you to be his, his child as well. There's one section, verses 6 and 7, that I need to conclude with today. This very simple confession of faith. A combination of just four words, and each one of them is significant. He points to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Four words. Important confession. Jesus, that name, means Savior. This Jesus is the name which was given him by God. This name that was revealed to Joseph. This name which is applied by all. Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. He's the Christ, and that's his title, not his name. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is Lord. He is Master. He's the owner. He's the one who, whom we serve. But notice the word, our. There's the key. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what, what we all have in common. We've all known the grace of God and we all recognize that Jesus is our Lord. As we, as we get ready for Christmas, I want you to focus on that little confession. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one whom we're preparing to receive. As I said, we need to quit a few minutes early. We're getting ready for the Christmas program for the kids. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Again, we thank you, our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For in your word today, you reveal to us the truth. You, you open to our eyes a mystery that we could never, never understand. That in your grace, you sent your Son, true God, into human flesh. In a unique way, born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, our Lord, our Savior. And in these days that follow, in these days before Christmas, we pray that you would open our minds, our hearts, our ears to hear that wonderful mystery, incarnation, God in human flesh. This child is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to ponder that Mary and Joseph truly did, what that means for us and our lives each day. We pray these things and all others in that name which is above all names. In the name of Jesus we pray it. Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord.